Oh, hello, everybody. Welcome to this fairly unique episode of Body and Wine Podcast thus far. If you are a new listener, you can just know that this is not the typical format of my podcast, what will take place in the following minutes, although feel free to listen. Typically, I have been interviewing people one-on-one on their diverse experiences with sex and spirituality or sexuality and belief in varying forms. But the biggest constructive critique I've got of the podcast so far has actually been that my voice is being edited out too much and that people want to get to know what I have to say about things which is pretty cool to hear, actually. So this podcast is coming out in part in response to uh, that, and also in part to the fact that, for me, writing is a really helpful tool to reflect on my own experiences. And recently, as I've mentioned and will mention, I was just fortunate to be on vacation in Pakistan uh, and had a lot of personal reflections in that process. So much of the content I felt was quite relevant to the podcast and just decided to share that with all of you. So enjoy! And if you feel inspired, let me know what you think. Shukriya. Please, we're so hungry. We're hungry for more. body of those listening is the temple of the Holy Spirit and together we desire and agree that it is in good health. The more that I am fortunate enough to travel, the more I am convinced of the goodness of people. Not that I've lacked knowing that goodness in my bones from the center point of the communities that birthed me. That's just it. Goodness can be found right at home in the familiar, yet it also can surprise you in the stranger. Among many gifts, that's my main takeaway from my recent month-long trip to Pakistan. A month is a long time for a vacation, and I'm grateful for my ability to take every minute of it. But a month is barely just enough time to blink at Pakistan. At the very start of my trip, I was meeting up with Will, who'd been cycling across many of the country's northern and northwestern regions for five months. Even in all that time and with all he's seen, Will would still say there's so much more to explore. The three major mountain ranges sloping down to the Arabian Sea, Pakistan feels endless in what it has to offer a visitor, to offer a new friend. I have learned all beings need the known and the unknown to evolve. Stability and chaos. This paradox works when we know where to root and when to discover and when we each have the freedom to find our balance amongst others seeking their own. There have been times in my life when the unknown was refreshingly kinder than the known, when leaving wasn't quitting but was the only way to grow, to blossom. It's this journey that initially took me to the literal expanses of the deserts in the Middle East in need of nourishment, that flipped my notion of stranger danger upside down and kicked the idea out the door. Better to make room for a culture of hospitality is what I've gathered from many of the supposedly scarier populations of the world, at least according to the beast of Western media. Welcoming the stranger is a practice, is oasis when in need, is a philosophy poured out in millions of cups of chai around the world every day. It is a belief system that can be learned and yield simple yet profound results when practiced. A friend of mine once told me that the farther your body moves, 
the farther your brain expands. He's Palestinian, born in the West Bank, limited in movement by literal and systemic walls, though he takes all the space he can through dance. He harnesses and channels all power in his limbs to move those who watch him perform and to strengthen his own heart in the process. He tells me, when his body is limited by the suffocating pressures of the illegal Israeli military occupation, he has books. Books are like traveling for the brain. The more we seek to know things we do not know, we discover new territories of the mind. I won't fully claim the idea that whatever you perceive to be real is real, but through general observations gathered simply by living, it seems to me that the debate of which is more pervasive in the world, good or evil, comes down to a sprinkle of immeasurable facts with heaps of perception dumped on top. If you believe that people are inherently not to be trusted, you will find what you seek. If you open to the goodness of hearts and hands, you will see the eyes of the world change along with your own. Unexpected reflections came to me while I was in Pakistan. One of the books I was reading during my travels was entitled A Woman's Anatomy of Arousal by Sherry Winston. The book was especially focusing on our yummy sexual spaces and places, and one section dove into the yin and yang energies existing in all things. Expanding from our sexuality as core, I realized that in many ways, I'm over this dichotomy of good versus bad in all areas of my life. In my youth, these two words were often described to me as opposing forces, one better than the other, indeed to the point where they were manifested as ultimate entities that control the forces of the universe, personified in a god the father and Satan, a master of destruction. Lately, I've been humbled by the wisdoms of the Tao, a pathway that part of which is teaching me to see these opposing two as one, navigating both together, searching not for one over the other, but finding balance, connection in the process. Islamophobia is a fear that paints far too many places and people as entities to hide from, push away, kill. The development of this idea has manifested entire populations as evil entities themselves. This bulking of individual humans into giant murky monsters that we, I say we generically as the White West, must separate ourselves from, actually perpetuates the imbalances between global populations. Other as bad is an idea that we can unlearn. It is the diversity that comes from the other that we actually need to grow. The paradox, known and unknown, in balance. I won't over-romanticize my experience in Pakistan, though truly it'd be easy to do so. The beauty I experienced in the land and relationships far outweighed things I did not enjoy or agree with while I was there. In the ways that we grasp for words to describe the depth and density of our experiences and fail to adequately portray the richness of life and its retelling, in this episode, I'll give you just a snippet of my weeks hanging out in Islamabad, Peshawar, Kanju, Gabanjaba, Chitral, and the Kalash Valley. Pakistan as my location for vacation was sort of a surprise. I'd never had dreams of traveling to Pakistan, though I had never been against it either. It just wasn't really on my radar as a dream destination. But over the year prior, I found myself dreaming of mountains, craving to wander in green after two years of being blessed to live on sea and sand in South Sinai, where I currently reside. My 30th birthday was due halfway through November, and I wanted to be grounded somewhere for that. I'd been floaty for the last few years, and now I sought solid earth. 
Over last spring and summer, I was open to where I'd go this fall, with Lebanon, Turkey, and Portugal as possibilities. I waited for inspiration, and it came to me on a boat crossing the Gulf of Aqaba early last summer. It was one of those random connections that makes you realize the power of how you never know in the simple moment-to-moment how your life can change. I met Will deboarding the boat from Jordan to Sinai and found my desires for walking in the woods aligned with his. After we parted in Egypt, we later toyed with the idea of meeting up in Kyrgyzstan after he'd spent a few months biking through Pakistan, or even seeing if we could get into the Afghani Wakhan corridor. But he fell in love with where he was and suggested we continue to explore it together when I'd eventually arrive months later. With the Himalaya, Hindu Kush, and Karakoram ranges, the vastness of Baluchistan, the bustle of Karachi, the silk trade routes, sacred Hindu sites and Buddhist temples, the mystery of Shangri-La, the flavors and spices of myriad cultures, this country is for the senses, for the soul, for love of family and the divine, for connection to greatness in some of the highest peaks of the world. It was decided. I'd come to Pakistan. And so, after assuring my family that it was more than safe to travel there, at the start of November, I flew into Islamabad right smack dab in the middle of demonstrations of a conservative group of Pakistanis following their right-wing leader named Faisal ur Rahman, who was calling for a people's rejection of last year's election results that brought in former and beloved cricket player Imran Khan. I had just missed the possible threat from the government that they'd seal off the country from external travelers until demonstrations had settled. Will picked me up at the arrivals hall, the seemingly only two fair-haired finding each other in a sea of kurtas and shawarkamis, one of which Will wore and blended in that much more into the crowd of hundreds of people waiting, holding garlands of flowers for loved ones just landed. As we taxied from the airport into the heart of the city, I wondered, for in all my assurance that the political situation was safe, I'd actually naively wandered into the images I'd seen of Pakistan on TV growing up, watching the reports of the Taliban's atrocities in the country. Images that many where I'm from would still falsely assume portray the reality of the country now. Political demonstrations for me have never been an outright reason not to go somewhere, knowing how falsely security and political situations can be reported. But maybe this time I'd made a mistake. Leaving the airport, we drove through casual Monday morning traffic. Every so often we passed trucks with black and white flags, symbolizing the party of those demonstrating. Eventually the cars collectively slowed and road blockages caused by the Jamiat Ulama Islam demonstrations halted our trip for a while. Our cab couldn't go any further. At a standstill, we jumped out, grabbed my luggage, and started to walk. The adventure begins when something goes unplanned. We followed a dirt path running parallel to the Kashmir Highway, towards a line of trucks and motorbikes bumping along, trying to bypass the roadblocks. We too were able to make the attempt, with the help of a stranger, who let us jump on the back of his truck with our bags. And so we rode into the city, bumping on the slow dirt side roads, standing in the carriage holding the top railing of the truck, likely used for carrying produce or other such large loads. We rooted around the roadblocks, the demonstrations that were some of the quietest I'd ever seen, and got my first real glimpses of Pakistan, the children laughing and waving as we all caravaned together, motorcycles impressing and defying physics with the amount of potatoes or people or piles of wood balanced on them. Within the first hour of arriving, I moved past the stereotypes of guns and into the pervasive realities of hospitality. I indeed hadn't made a mistake by coming here. We were more than safe, and I was tremendously happy to get to know the place. The capital of Pakistan was only built in 1960. Islamabad is young and settling into itself. 
The gridded roads are green, tree-lined streets extending from the lush monkey and wild boar-filled Margala hills lining the city's spine to the east. I settled into the country as we splurged on cheap hotels for a few days. Guest houses that still felt like luxury in comparison to the more simple accommodations we were used to when traveling. Even with the faucets falling off the sink, a balcony you had to crawl through a window to get to, and room service french fries. An unexpected fresh taste of burnout came over me those first few days, after my busy few months prior caught up with me. My mind wanted to go, 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 but my body needed to full stop. This became one of the few themes of the trip. As much as I wanted to push my body with high hikes and treks, I actually needed to rest for a while, to refuel. Indulging in a plethora of extravagant cuisines, often more available to our lips than we could handle, became habit. We got to know Pakistan by touring the flavors that feed its regions, from Indian ghosts ranging all the way to Afghan kebab. Tasting parts of the KPK region has been one of the most memorable journeys I've taken thus far. After gathering our bearings in Islamabad with the help of much clay tandoori junction chai and mouth-watering palak paneer consumed beside the sacred paintings of the Hindu temple in Saidpur village, we snuggled into a coach bus with biryani chicken takeaway and binged on episodes of Big Mouth with shared earbuds and made our way west. Peshawar is one of the oldest cities in Pakistan. It is a feast for the senses with kites and kite birds swirling overhead. The psychedelic tin-crafted buses and tuk-tuks swerving through markets filled with intense flavors of history. We feasted on street food, arguably the best I've ever had. Stimulated by color and languages and the ever-mixing of things Mughal old and Chinese made new, hanging from tiny shops all squeezed together. As Pakistan tourism is recovering from the severe plummet the industry took after 9-11, our presence as foreigners along the old markets of a former hub along the silk trade routes was received with a blend of surprise and joy and frequent curious eyes, the majority of them kind, paired with offers for green tea, the specialty of this bazaar, teacups swirling with a fresh squeeze of lemon. The second most important Urdu word we needed to use left our lips often, shukriya, accepting an invitation for food or drink with a thank you yes, with a nod of the head and right hand open, or politely declining thank you no, with hand over heart and a smile. The most important Urdu saying not only reflects the religion of the day, but more so the attitudes of the population. Its Arabic origin has an offering of peace in its greeting. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. As we dabbled in the collection of Urdu words that Will knew, and the handful that I was slowly just dipping into, we entered into the realms of communication with strangers like a game of charades. Exaggerated hand gestures, hip movements, head bobbing or shaking, twinkling and winking eyes to meet each other in understanding. We dealt cards on the green of a public park, with children playing around and with us, smiles passed freely and often. In the same courtyard, too, is a mosque, Hindu temple, and church, all thriving, nestled beside each other. The layers of history are seen in the walls of the city with intricate wooden mogul trimmings and the dominance of the British Empire in the stately buildings throughout the city. The Peshawar Museum was a former British colony dance hall, now converted into showcasing the rich religious and colonial histories of the region. It is adorned with Buddhist stupas and what is left after the Taliban destroyed most of the stone carvings of the story of Buddha. I don't know much about Buddhism, but stories of people with worldly powers leaving it all behind for the sake of others is always captivating to me. This sort of big love that some in systems of belief have twisted into versions that satisfy their own thirst for domination and corruption, missing the point completely. 
The museum's collection made me think of how much our earth desperately needs the embodiment of a sitting Buddha, of a teaching Siddhartha, more than ever. We slept those nights in yet another shithole but satisfying hotel. One evening, as we were sinking into food comas, Will watched on his phone an update of Australia's Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, spewing the poison of propaganda for profit at the expense of people and planet dying. His fresh idiocy declaring that mining is good for the environment offers a horrifying picture that perhaps powers that be actually believe the folly they preach. As the realities of climate change are felt all over the world, we listened to an impassioned clip of Bruce Shillingsworth, a First Nations, Murawari, and Bujiti man bringing us to tears, not to make us sit in our own puddle of sadness, but move those tears into actual action that can bring back the rivers that have dried up in Australia. Put the waters back in the river, he cries out. Corruption and capitalism has killed our rivers. The lands are dying of thirst. Can our own tears flood into rivers again, or is it too late? Such is the heavy burden we're collectively carrying more and more. Pakistan's glaciers have been melting at an ever-increasing rate. The mountain regions hold more than 7,000 glaciers, which have long supplied water to the hundreds of thousands of people who live among them. Almost half of the glaciers have formed unstable lakes, and dozens are at risk of bursting, causing avalanches or flooding that have already begun to be catastrophic for those underneath. With just basic understanding of the dependence the entire nation has on these glacier water systems, the horrifying forecast of the future is hard not to overwhelm, if really taken seriously. What will these valleys we're falling in love with, that so many people depend upon, look like in 30 years' time? In 20? In 10? In reference to the vast amounts of garbage in the streets, a complex topic, a Japanese friend we'd made in Islamabad had asked her Pakistani colleagues why citizens litter so much. When given a response that indicated not only a lack of educational understanding of the impacts of pollution, there was a laissez-faire attitude about the health of the earth itself. When she asked how they thought the earth was formed, and they responded, by Allah, by God, they started to reflect that maybe they shouldn't throw garbage on such an extravagant gift created for them to live on, for their children and for their grandchildren. It was the first time they ever thought that perhaps they had a role to play in caring for not just their spiritual existence, but their physical lives as well. The gift of the earth itself, a gift that many believe came from God. I remember thinking the same thing in church when I used to attend, finding gaps between the focus on heaven as a place to get to when we die, taking away the responsibility for the paradise we've been offered in the now. It was as though, in the Garden of Eden story, we'd convinced ourselves that we'd already been locked out of a fruitful earth, that Adam and Eve's exile, as the story goes, banishment to barren land, is what we have been living in, a broken earth. The interpretations of the Christian creation story I grew up with made it seem that we were cut off from living well with the earth because of sin, that we should focus on surviving in the desert until we die and fixing our souls instead to maybe have a chance in the afterlife to re-enter a golden garden with the angels. A new earth, I was taught, as though the one we inhabit is not miracle enough. Such views take away responsibility if one believes that there is something better coming, if this world is some sort of purgatory until you earn your ticket out. It seemed to disconnect us over centuries from seeing the places we Christianized people encountered not as gifts to be humbled by, but lands to take over. Instead of seeing places and ecosystems and other cultures to get excited about, to build relationships together, we lived like those convinced we were banished, while we were also convinced we were given dominion over land and its creatures, and not as a place equal alongside all living things. 
Another book I was reading over my trip was Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. In her first chapter, she paints an indigenous creation story of Sky Woman, where the earth is formed by her with the help of river otters, geese, a turtle, and more. A creation story that teaches its listeners that their place on the earth is one of many, in a collective, in cooperation. That life comes from relationship, not an abusive one, but a symbiotic one. Empowered into existence by the strength and care of a woman, not punished and banished by her scorn. There have been other interpretations of the Christian and Muslim creation stories that are changing the way followers see their role in earth care. And how important are these evaluations and evolutions of the stories we tell, the narratives with which we raise our children? As we moved from Peshawar towards the banks of the Swat River Valley, I wondered at my own narrative. Am I willing, like Buddha, like the First Nations people I know who've been calling out for change for centuries, to walk away from the consumption I've been spoiled into needing? What narrative do I tell myself about the footprints I make on this earth? If I truly see myself as equal to all things, what am I not only willing to let go of, which would be a lot if I truly lived into the reality of our world's current condition, but also what am I willing to give back? I remember the wisdom of the seven generations mentality from indigenous friends back home. That sustainability in some of their cultures was not take one, give one back. It was take one, give back seven. For every one tree you use, plant seven. For every life you take to eat, provide for seven more. Live life now for the children seven generations from my own. Live life now with the wisdom of the seven generations that have come before. What would my life look like if I truly embodied that? Our spiritual and religious health depends on our earthly health. How are our belief systems enacted in our bodies, not just in our hearts? How do our spiritual practices include the dirt and beings around us? I am convinced that body and soul are not disconnected. So how can my soul be healthy if I'm disregarding the cells that house it? On our last day in Peshawar, twilight beige varieties bounced off the buildings of the Bazaar Kalam, like the cricket balls thrown and hit by schoolboys along dusty streets before dark. Bellies and hearts full, we made our way to lush Swat Valley. Swat is the northwest frontier province of Pakistan, between the foothills of the Hindu Kush mountain range. Cited as the cradle of Buddhism with over 1,400 monasteries formerly thriving there, it was one of the major hubs for Buddhist pilgrimage. The calming waters of the Swat River, running 240 kilometers through the KPK province, have seen intense ebbs and flows of war and peace. From centuries ago, conquest by Alexander the Great and more recent rule of the Taliban, the mountains of Swat continue to hold key moments in human history. We were welcomed ecstatically with laughs and smiles and hugs for Will by an entourage of his friends from Kanju, a town across the river from where our car arrived in Mingora, the region's major city. This is the city that birthed, raised, and witnessed the shooting of Malala. Amongst the joy of our little welcome party, it was hard for me to imagine the horrors of what happened here only a handful of years ago. The region's Pashtun houses are family-focused, the structures themselves designed for large families to exist in a communal way. The homes we stayed in were comprised of large courtyards with individual couples and families' rooms surrounding the collective living and eating spaces. Pakistan's still strong gender and class systems are visible in who is cooking for you, opening the gate for you, mopping the floor. From what I understand, these clear hierarchies of power extend through the Mughal Empire, the distortions of the colonial era, and has transitioned easily into the new capitalist era. 
For me, this made for an at times confusing mix of gratitude for the deep hospitality and my own complex notions of equality. We were being cared and hosted for so well, but at times it was just plain difficult to know that we were being served by classes or women that had no choice but to do so. But leaning into conversation when possible, meeting in our similarities, and again just holding off on comparisons of good versus bad when the timing is inappropriate, meant that despite complexities, with those complexities, we could become friends in places we might have never expected. But our days in SWAT were slow and sunny. The crisp fall air showed signs of giving way to winter's call. I'd fallen ill both with the typical stomach adjustment that happens for foreigners getting used to the local bacteria, and also with a short illness that required a trip to the pharmacy outside the village we were staying in and back across the bridge to Mingora. The pharmacy that had the medicine I needed was right on the town's main square, Kunichok, meaning bloody square. I learned its name while I was at the height of my stomach troubles, and in between frequent trips to the bathroom of an Afghan barbecue restaurant right beside the pharmacy, I learned that Bloody Square, the bustling business hub, was named such for its prolonged use of the Taliban to make executed examples of what would happen to those who opposed them, hanging from the light posts in the center of the square, blood-stained. A town remembering those who were lost with such a name, in the fog of my sickness, the bright sun was shining on the smiles that greeted us on the street. It was a beautiful day in Kunichak, and my stomach churned with the intensity of it all. We passed our days in SWAT in the best way possible, spending time between the many spliffs shared with our friends, the doctor, his driver, their friend from another class, all committed pals and chosen brothers with each other, and now with Will, who'd spent significant time with them the previous summer. We wandered the farmlands and canals between the homes and shops and animal shelters. The burnt orange of the persimmons ripening complemented the golden leaves carpeting the meandering pathways. But as the trees were slowly burying their bones for winter, the varied foliage was still predominantly green, even as preparations for cold, like packing manure for fire fuel, were underway. My 30th birthday was approaching, and Will had found the perfect place to celebrate finding liberal freedom in the isolation of the pine forests of Gavanjaba, away from the generous love but conservative care of Kanju village. It was nearly impossible to escape for the many offers to come for tea and meals. We could have stayed for a year if we accepted the rollout of invitations to stay, to share food. Coming from a suburban culture where it became increasingly rare to know your neighbors, let alone show up at a friend's house without previous plans, the Pashtun expectation of coming for a visit meant staying for over at least three days. Swat Valley had been a rest for our bones, plumped us up, and caffeinated us well with the many conversations over chai we'd accepted over the days. We stole away in a jeep bumping its way for a few hours along cliffs and over rocks to a cluster of pine-cased eco-lodges nestled beyond the trout farms of mountain hamlet Lauku. The temperature lowered as we rose higher in altitude and found ourselves pleasantly secluded in the low tourist season of the area, which is a still relatively unknown gem for both national and foreign travelers. I entered my 30s with the most unexpected walk down memory lane. The flora of Gabanjaba is exactly the same as the forest that my imagination took flight in as a child of the Great Lakes back home. Down to the plantain on the forest floor, to the hallways of sumac, and perfect climbing branches to the heights of the pine canopies, I entered a new phase of womanhood in the most perfect way. By reconnecting to my younger self, scampering the needled and freshly snow-dusted slopes with the return of play, of exploration, of dreaming. As an adult, I hope to never lose the sense of fairies, to hold space for the wisdom of a child's curiosity. 
For the greater part of a week, we'd melted into daily practices, like starting our days with laughter, waking up to coffee, and listening to the podcast My Dad Wrote a Porno, one I highly recommend. In moments of quiet on ridges or resisting cold under piles of blankets, we'd read to each other the fantasy tales of the Otari clan series. With lavender oil and candlelight by night and drinking straight from springs and observing insect kingdoms by day, I felt more connected to the dance of the universe, to another human being, to myself. Will and I reflected on the phenomenal sense we feel that the more time we spend outside, the more we become ourselves. The next phase of our journey included a detour back to Islamabad for paperwork. We slotted in a day rock climbing in the Margala Hills and a night smoking a spliff with a relatively rogue DJ. Due to the still quite dominant conservative cultures around him, our new friend thrived in the underground scene, like his friends who joined him, in secret. With a steady corporate office job at Nestle, he could pass as well-behaved according to family expectations. He'd recently been arranged to be married to a woman he hardly knew. Does she know about your raves? About your music? No? When will you tell her? He had a year-long plan to slowly introduce her to his EDM music, and as it was safe to do so, also the epic underground festivals he planned around Lahore and Islamabad. Arranged marriages are still more common in Pakistan than love marriages. Yet our generation, with increased access to non-Pakistani traditional ways of thinking, are juggling how the strength of family influences fits or clashes with personal desires. Many young people are finding themselves in between the ways the East and the West push, pull, and blend with each other, and between the generations. How the public influences the private. How the family and its members operate together, and increasingly apart. On to the next part of our journey, Will and I throw all our layers on at once and jump on board the Cushy Hindu Kush Express, taking us overnight the 10-hour drive to Chitral. We arrive in the early hours of the morning, alhamdulillah, to the light of the only chai and paratha shop open in the still fully darkened streets, cold cutting our noses and our breath visible in the light of the shop spilling out into the street. Entering the shop and moving past the usual stairs of curiosity, we took off our shoes, as is custom in most traditional homes and restaurants, and climbed onto a raised platform to sit cross-legged beside the few other early risers along a plastic mat where our sweet chai and freshly fried paratha would be served. We warmed as we waited for Teacher Shahid, a man we'd never met before, but was the professor and friend of two young women Will came to call sisters from Kalash, a community we were en route to visit a few hours deeper into the mountains the next day. Saida and Sabra are strong women, living in Chitral, a conservative Muslim town about three or four hours bumpy jeep cliff road ride away from the Kalasha Valley. The Kalasha people are the last remaining indigenous, non-Muslimized people group in Pakistan. Though it's heartbreaking to say, they are struggling under the forces that are actively changing that fact. The Kalasha people are known for their beauty, for their wine, for their peace that still glows in their valleys and is contagious. Many camera lenses have traveled to this remote place to capture the smiles, dancing, and rituals. Yet what is also captured in the lens is culture all too quickly becoming history. Is life somehow thriving and bursting with all its richness of tradition, as Litz slowly tries to maintain it before becoming just that, history. Saida, a bright-eyed, attentive young woman, not yet 20, is studying away from her family in Chitral, in an attempt to eventually help her people. 
With a quick brain, she has the casual thought of becoming a doctor as occupation, while her real passion burns to help her people in some significant way. Just as she's better than all the boys at cricket, but not allowed to play now that she's away from home, under the watch and curfew of conservative streets in Chitral, she's a born leader, despite barriers against her. Sabra, a strong woman with a shy smile, wants to bring people to the mountains, to know them with her. Studying tourism in Chitral, she hopes to open her own tourist agency and mountain guide based from there. Teacher Shah had retrieved us after Chai, as the sun began to show itself from beyond the frame of mountain ridges that surrounded us on all sides. Visible at the far end of town is the Tirakmir Peak. After a short canal-pathed walk from Teacher Shahid's frosted car, we entered a flurry of joy in the reconnection of Will and his sisters, who he'd spent three weeks with that previous summer getting to know during the preparations for and celebrations of the Yuhal festival in Kalash. We ate breakfast by Shahid's fire, inside concrete walls typical of the homes we'd stayed in thus far, with little to no insulation apart from concrete to cut the wind. Communal time around the main fire is typical. Will and I were still chilled beneath our six layers of clothing, while Saida and Sabra flew about the earthy kitchen, each in a layer, or maybe two, of thin cotton. They danced around the cast iron stove, making a second breakfast, while they also got ready for school that day. In the whirlwind of the morning, we made plans to spend the evening all together. Breakfast is not enough time to properly visit. We sent them off to their classes and passed the day paraded around a local university, consumed cups of chai with important people, and reconnected that evening with the ladies and teacher Shahid for what was sure to be a silly night. Shahid was excited at the excuse of having foreigner guests to get some moonshine wine from the black market, as all alcohol is illegal in Pakistan. The grand plan was to drive to the edge of town and watch a herd of some sort of stampeding animal stampede over a cliff at dusk while drinking in the car, far from the eyes of snitches. Shahid had a wild imagination and somehow lost count of how many hours are in a day, thinking we'd also have time, interest, and energy that day to ride horses, check out the local airport, and arrange a musician to come and play for us. We convinced him that wine, stampede, and chilling by the fireside was more than enough. Following Pakistani time, we missed the dusk stampede, but happily parked on the side of the road to consume the quote-unquote wine, which was as surely as Shahid the teacher remarked was the best he'd ever tasted, was indeed the worst I'd ever had. Though of course I didn't dare explain that to him, that it was closer to a batch of kombucha I'd accidentally let turn into vinegar several years back. But regardless, it was knocked back like medicine, save for sober Sabra, sitting in the middle of the back seat beside me, laughing at the ridiculousness of her fellow passengers as she knocked back a large bag of peanuts. And for Saida, who was consuming for the first time an alcoholic beverage, despite the Kalasha people not only liberally and frequently drinking wine and brandy, but making it and celebrating it during their favorite festival in the winter, Chamas, she'd never tried any. Her disappointment at these first few sips were noticeable in the way she'd casually spilled drops out the window. After a couple of plastic glasses each, Shahid assured us that he drives better when he's drunk, and we swerved home to the serenade of Saida's favorite Justin Bieber remix. The hours sloshed into night as we did, giddy with vinegar, I mean wine, in our veins, playing the card game Shithead, and teasing 33-year-old teacher Shahid when he attempted to make his first ever in his life pot of chai, and failed miserably. 
The next morning, Will and I wrap ourselves in our newly purchased Chitrali scarves, as big as blankets, after assuring the shopkeeper who sold them to us that it was okay that I wanted to buy the men's one that didn't have flowers on it. For no more than $3 each, our travel sacks were strapped and knotted by Will to the top of a pickup truck, and we were crammed, six men and myself one woman, into a five-person cab for the trek past the camouflaged entry into the Kalash Valleys of Rumbor, Bomberet, and Berir. We found the house of Saida's father, Engineer Khan, in Rumbor, a village along the Kalash River as their shared center point running through the middle, with their most sacred temple perched on a ledge overlooking the houses, rows of which make steps of homes down the hills, complementing the landscape as they follow its natural curves and edges. From where this village is nestled, one could walk just 20 hours and get to Afghanistan. We were that close to the border. The denseness of the cliffs and halls of mountains that twist from the main Chitral River into the Kalasha Valleys creates a natural fortress for the community that had kept them protected for centuries until recent decades from forces that might, and now are, exploiting them. The Rumbor Valley only received electricity a handful of years ago. Still, there's no internet or data service, and written language was only developed in this culture about 20 years ago, oral traditions quickly getting lost in translation into written form. After dancing our first night away with Engineer, who was named such by his father who'd wanted all of his sons to have strong English names, not knowing much of the language himself, he'd chosen words he knew were associated with strength. His other sons named Colonel, General, and one more I can't remember, maybe Major or Lieutenant. Engineer was named well. He does indeed have a smart, creative, strong personality. He's got a spring in his step, always keen for a laugh and a tease and one of the kindest souls you'd ever meet. Always on the move, the first night he showed us how the Kalash rock out to the warmth of the wood stove. After laughing yet also being truly impressed by his flow, we stood and joined him along with Rosie and Adil, a Canadian and Pakistani couple who we'd bumped into on the road and who'd met Will previously. Later, we all got drunk to the refreshingly delicious Kalasha-made wine and apricot brandy from a former Mountain Dew bottle. Adil DJ'd us with grease lightning and superstition as we exercised our dance moves that would be needed for the next evening. We were invited to the wedding of the cousin of Engineer's wife. The bride of the family had experienced a death in the family that same week. We were told that funerals for the Kalasha people are celebrations. Songs and dancing are required as the life is transitioned from this one to the next, creating a sort of somber joy. An eerie mixing of sadness and happiness that flowed into the celebrations of the wedding we landed at. The evening we were a part of was the final wedding event in the traditional series of ceremonies and celebrations, a multi-month process that culminates in a multi-day series of events. This one took place at the groom's family home. I'd been wrapped in one of the beautifully hand-embroidered dresses of the local women and adorned with their daily crown of beads that balances on top of the head in a circle with hair braided and small braids to hold it up as it drapes down to between the shoulder blades. The bride was 15, not an uncommon age for that community, for Pakistan in general. In Kalash, the bride and groom can choose each other or choose arranged marriage. There's a process of trial where the couple lives together for a few months with visits from both sides of the family to check in. If the wedding is fully decided to go ahead, the days of ceremony and feasting commence. This was the end of that process. Five goats were slaughtered, cooked, and shared between the dozens of people milling between the dance room. The bride and her posse's chilled-out hangout space and varied outdoor spots, one of which we found ourselves smoking spliffs with a teacher of the community. He held the presence of an elder, of which I'm not actually sure he was. But he's one of those wise folks who speak with an aura around them that cannot be ignored. 
that makes something in your soul stand to attention. He spoke of the state of his people, how the village we were in that night, Bombaret, is quickly being converted. Muslim men come into the valley, bribe, choose, and convert the most beautiful young women, and take their land, building right down to the river, a once traditionally open space where everyone benefited from. Once converted, a Kalasha cannot be Kalasha again. And converted or not, many of the young people are now leaving, understandably, for the bigger cities, for better work or education. Less and less of them know the ceremonies, the beliefs of the culture. There are only about 4,000 left in the community itself, and its knowledge is falling between the cracks. How can the children learn the whole if they are only shown the half, the teacher said, eyes closed as if channeling connection with something greater than himself, and also possibly the hash he was inhaling. He then spoke of dancing, one of life's greatest gifts. He described it as one of the most sacred of things. Not just solemn dancing, but free movement, celebration, expression, and fun. The holiness of happiness is what he said. What a dude. From the heat of the fire, we slipped past the cold into the steamy dance room. A bare room in of itself, but filled to the brim with people. A band was cross-legged in a corner playing giant pots turned upside down for drums, the beat given melody by a flute player. A dense crowd encircled the dance floor where one to three individuals of any age or gender or skill took turns dancing for all watching. Brandy and wine was passed and fell like the streams of Kalash from hand to hand to hand. We swam in it. Engineer and his wife, Ghoul, whose smile reached across any room she entered, danced the best of the night, entranced in connection. The love and commitment of over 30 years rotating around the room. Will and I were cheered into a dance as well, which we wiggled into, less beautifully than those who came before us, but still keen, spirits bright, and tipsy happy. Eight days in Kalash unfolded. Slightly dampened by sickness and the encroaching winter winds, we leaned into a rhythm of morning walks upriver, following the streams past loggers carrying large loads on their backs or pushing what they need down waterfalls. Resting by shepherds' huts under the varied shade of juniper and oak trees, we'd catch the slivers of sunlight that would come through the off-and-on cloudy days. Sun brought energy, and gray days made the colors of the valley pop. Yellow leaf carpeted ledges and the high channels of the water canals provided pathways above the village. The colorful dresses of the women swished up and down the steps that wind through the village down, across, and up from the river. Children and goats and the daily work of sustenance living were the movement of arteries pumping the heart of the people, who greet each other with Ishbata Baba, Ishbata Baya. How are you, sister? How are you, brother? And easy, genuine smiles. The kindness and contentedness of the people is hard not to admire and be inspired by. After our morning gallivants, we'd come back to Engineer's house to lunches of Luvia, a locally grown and made red bean doll and rice or potato walnut mash. Delish. Evenings were warmed with candle glow and fairy lights, and another practice we'd built into our routine, massage, which in sickness and in health became nutrition for the body and soul alike. Even though we both had come down with a cold, our cabin seemed like a place of respite, a haven from which to saunter between resting and reflecting. One morning, after a plate of potato and onion omelet, we dabbled in Wade Davis, a Canadian anthropologist passionate about the preservation of Indigenous peoples, their languages, bodies of knowledge, cultural practices, as integral to the well-being of not only those individuals themselves, but humanity collectively, and indeed the health of the earth in its current human-made crisis. Language is an old growth forest of the mind, 
He addresses his audience during one of his CBC Massey Hall series lectures. His words rang so truly as we woke overlooking this village in the midst of the very threat Davis speaks of. What will happen to these people when their language is lost? When the stories and beliefs cannot be translated or written down? When the meaning of the dancing ceremonies no longer inform the dancers? When the sacredness of the water fairies is no longer to be honored, sacrificed to, protected? And capital and business continue to take the shores and violate the waters? But the choice for the young generation is complex. Stay in the hopes of a life of simple contentedness, or leave by choice, or no other option, towards the forces of capitalism and supposed notions of development, tempted by the very forces that are perhaps eradicating you. In our wanderings of the Kalash Mountain villages, we'd find ourselves in and around chit-chats with locals about day-to-day topics like how the apple harvest was this year, or when the frost will blanket the grounds. The weight of these realities comes out in varying ways through the many conversations. Much of the culture revolves around the collective understandings of pure and impure. There are fears for the women in their communities, seen as equal, free to not be restricted to their homes unlike their increasingly number of Muslim neighbors. The inequality is impure, we were told. Though it's a complicated thing for me to talk about, I couldn't help but agree that I was finding it hard to pass the full burqa women, find it difficult to connect with her. So many literal and figurative walls built between us, preventing not only conversation, but eye contact. How can one see the human when you cannot see the eyes? The contrast that this Kalash community is seeing from their own women having freedom in their communities to that and being increasingly taken at times when they become fully veiled and forced to stay home or have a chaperone if they convert to Islam is something that I cannot imagine. That said, the families and friends we were hosted by in Pakistan, some of whom were fully burqa women, was where we experienced incredible openness to humanity, kindness, table shared with strangers, my home is your home genuinely offered and impressed on us. Will and I closed our stay in Kalash with a final squeeze to a puppy companion we'd best friended and lovingly named Baba Dogi. We moved into our final days of the trip through Chitral, along and through the mountain roads, back to Islamabad. One of our last afternoons in the capital, we wandered a mix of new sites we hadn't yet seen, with revisiting spots we'd grown to love, even in our short stints in the city. Starting our exploration in the echo of the call to prayer through the dome of the epic Faisal Mosque, Will and I then took a taxi, passing in each main intersection some of the transgender population who offered through our car window garlands and blessings. A population paradoxically desired for their connection to the divine, while reduced to lower class resorting to begging in the streets or for prostitution, risking much just to state their true gender orientation. After several green lights and with mixed emotions turning down garlands and blessings, we took a detour from our original destination when Will smirkily asked where we could find alcohol in Islamabad. The taxi driver had nodded at the question, rolled down his window, and hailed a fellow taxi who rolled alongside us at full speed on the highway with three giggling women in the back as the drivers exchanged quick understandings of the location of the illegal and banned drink. We then headed to a dodgy, crumbly, concrete, and garbage-laden parking lot behind the West Western Hotel and watched our driver stand next to a high cinder block wall, reach up, and exchange money for a bottle to a hand that hung out through the hole above his head. Giddy as teenagers smuggling drinks from authorities, we cherished our loot now mixed into pop bottles in our backpack, ate one of our last dinners among the pink and blue and green mosaics of Sideport Village, and dressed ourselves in shabby chic, emphasis on the shabby, and sauntered into the fanciest hotel I'd ever been to. 
the Islamabad Marriott. We'd heard rumors of the only bar that we know of that existed in the city resting beneath this hotel and found it down a plain hall and through a plain door marked with a plain sales and marketing sign beside a not-so-plain security guard letting us in. As fairy tales come true, the door opened to a stairwell that led us to a neon-lit, literal underground sports bar, pool table and all. We toasted our illegal booze and to the transition back to our westernish worlds. The gifts of my trip to Pakistan came to me in many forms of rice dishes, more Snickers bars than I typically consume, learning to lie low in sickness, being present without data, laughing a lot, and continuing my growing relationship with mountains and the myriad living things living around them. I've reflected more on the power of the body, of healing that comes by being outside, of the learning that comes from connection with the stranger, with a companion, and with myself. I felt through the trip what a gift my life is, the many things it has offered me and the power I've been fortunate to grow into and harness what beauty I can from that and hope that I build back into things that matter. If I take seriously the lessons of living a life not by majority consuming, not by living tit for tat that taking one and giving one back is enough, but by taking a bit and giving back sevenfold, or at least more than what I took, how would my life really change? I don't know the answer to that yet, but I hope to continue learning and growing into the kind of woman that lives more and more with the earth that has formed her, that has given her physical feet to move around and hands to dig into dirt, that has culturally given me ability and power to give to what I choose amongst what I can. Perhaps some of the answers to that I can find in the examples of the open door policy of my new Pashtun friends, in honoring the sacredness of both water and dancing as the Kalasha do, to letting the power of the woods change my being by spending more time there, by becoming one with its ecosystems and not against them. The things the child in me once felt in the fairy-filled forest back home continued to come back to me under the branches I find myself under over the chapters I write into womanhood. The pines and their people still have much to teach me, and I am learning. Thank you to everybody who's been so supportive so far. If you haven't already and you're an Instagrammer, it'd be awesome if you followed the Instagram at Body and Wine Podcast, uh, and I'll follow you back. If you like the episode or any of the other episodes that I'm producing, it'd be amazing if you shared that to whoever you think would also be interested. And also, if you really feel inspired and you feel like you've got some extra change, which may or may not happen this time of year with all of the holiday stuff, I do have a Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash body and wine podcast. And you can support the show in one-time pledges, in $1, $5, or $25 monthly pledges, or your own creative amount. Could be $7, could be $2.50, whatever you feel inspired by. And feel free, as always, to get in touch with me about absolutely anything. All right, much love in the winter. Mwah.